the origins of the Jews of India go back to the ancient period. And we basically have four different types of population that inhabitant the subcontinent. First of all, you have the Cochin Jews who live on the Malabar coast here in the southern part of the uh, subcontinent. And then you have the B'nai Israel, uh, and they're sort of like circled by this uh, green square box here and they're primarily a little bit to the north near the city of Mumbai uh, and then you have the so-called Baghdadi Jews who are not necessarily all from Baghdad and uh, they are concentrated in Kolkata but also located in some of the populations where Jews had previously resided and finally the so-called Paradesi Jews who are spread out uh, in a few centers uh, also found within the, uh, the recognized population centers that we noted. Let's have a look at these four distinct type of Jews in a very quick overview. Uh, first of all, let's begin with the Cochin Jews, who are the earliest Jews recorded in India. Uh, they certainly date from the ancient period. We know from the text of the Hebrew scriptures, the Tanakh, that there are several words that are uh, uh, related to Sanskrit and Tamil, which are most likely connected to the trade that went on between ancient Israel and ancient India. Um, there are terms primarily for like various goods and gems and things like that. There's also a possibility that this remarkable, mysterious Ophir, that is the source of much of Solomon's wealth, may have been a place called Sufpara at the mouth of the Indus River, which also housed a very ancient uh, civilization. But we know from multiple sources, from not only Jewish sources, but Greek sources and Roman sources and so on, that there was significant amount of trade, particularly from the west coast of India and the Middle East. Uh, by the time you get to the medieval period, the Radonite traders, who we spoke about in a previous class, have been traveling all through this route and definitely are engaged in trade all across the, uh, the European and the Asian continents and they're described primarily in Arab historians. So we know that there are Jews who are visiting India and who are in uh, possibly setting up kinds of settlements in India. The first of those settlements is the so-called Cochin Jews. Now we know of their uh, history from their local legends but one of the most fascinating early documents that we have that specifically refers to them are the series of three copper plates that are apparently a type of a charter that were issued to the Jews of Cochin from a local king. And this kind of like sets the tone for much of the history of Cochin Jewry, a remarkable level of, uh, you know, uh, coexistence with the local population. One of the things that's quite fascinating about this period is that there seems to have been no indigenous anti-Semitism. I know, right? That's like so hard to believe, but there seems to be very, very few incidents of any kind of organized anti-Jewish impetus. This may be related to the fact that you know, pagan empires, ironically, tend to be more tolerant of other religions than monotheistic faiths. Perhaps that's because of the approach being, you know, like, we have lots of gods, what's one more anyway, that kind of thing. Uh, but at any rate, that seems to be the case in Cochin. So these three copper plates uh, offer some kind of charter, which essentially a promise to a possibly 
a legendary local Jewish figure named Joseph Rabban, giving the Jews of Cochin all kinds of privileges, um, many of them symbolic in nature, like the right to use a parasol, which is apparently something reserved for royalty and things like that. The plates themselves date from probably the 11th century, really old, and that of course does not speak to the origins of the Cochin Jews, which could have gone back easily to the ancient period. Uh, they are written in the Malayalam language in the Vatelutu script. Yes, I pronounced that. I hope I pronounced it correctly. Um, and one of the factors that we have to bear in mind when we're studying India is that it is so far from uh, homogenous. Just like when we talked about Africa, there are literally dozens upon dozens of cultures with multiple languages and multiple faiths and so on. So although it does have one kind of like geographic description, it is, you know, one contiguous territory, uh, India is really made up of many, many different civilizations. Now, the Cochin Jews were fascinating in that they seem to have not really been deeply connected to the traditional rabbinic or even the later Karaite uh, iterations of Jewish thought. And they seem to have, you know, evolved with local indigenous leadership that led to a lot of really fascinating kind of local customs. Like, for example, this is a parochis, a, uh, a curtain that is placed in front of the ark that holds the Torah. This is a common element in synagogues all over the world. And of course, harkens back to the temple where a curtain would separate the Holy of Holies from the rest of the temple grounds. But a fascinating element in the Cochin Jews, Jewish customs is that they incorporate um, the, uh, the skirt or other type of clothing of a bride into the parochet itself, which is a fascinating kind of uh, uh, idea that actually bear, brings to mind some interesting Kabbalistic references to the Torah as a kind of me'orasa, as a as a, um, a bride that is to be married, fascinating kinds of things. But at any rate, they incorporate that right into the parochas. Also fascinating, there was a custom that on the eve of the Sabbath, on Friday afternoon, a synagogue functionary would take a uh, taper uh, and light it from the ner tamid, from the eternal flame that burns inside, inside the synagogues. In modern synagogues, it tends to be an electric bulb that's sometimes made to look like a fire, but obviously in medieval, uh, pre-modern times, they would have to use an actual flame. And he would carry this taper to all the homes where they would have these kind of like oil things um, set up on the outside of their homes. And he would like share the light of the synagogue with all the Jewish homes on the eve of the Sabbath. Beautiful kind of idea, I think. Um, so uh, the Cochin Jews changed significantly with the arrival of the Portuguese. These is, this is the first major influx of Western Europeans that occurs uh, in, in the, uh, the age of discovery when people like Vasco da Gama are making their way around India and exploiting the region for trade. Um, the, uh, this is an interesting uh, Portuguese depiction of what they thought the, uh, the Jews of Malabar looked like and represented that backwards to, uh, to Europe. And um, there's an interesting kind of thing happening with the arrival of the Europeans where some of the local elites are, the Jewish elites are sometimes co-opted by the Portuguese. One of those is none less than Gaspar de Gama, who was uh, an interesting Jewish character who was apparently forcibly baptized by 
um, Vasco da Gama himself, the great explorer. He took the name da Gama after his um, patron, as it were. And uh, then he went on to a, a rather brilliant career as a translator for the Portuguese, helping them negotiate the uh, vagaries of Indian culture and language. Fascinating kind of elements. But we'll talk more about the impact of the Europeans shortly. Uh, here's uh, an interesting photograph from 1978. You can see in the foreground is a Hindu temple, and in the background with that distinct clock tower is the Cochin Jewish synagogue, one of several, actually. Uh, they actually were established a little bit further to the north in a town called Shingli until in the 14th century it was wiped out by a big flood uh, and then they moved a little bit further to the south. And they have this famous uh, synagogue with the clock tower on it. Here's another photograph of the tower itself. You can see that it actually had three sides and on one of the sides the uh, numbers and the clock were rented in Hebrew. Uh, fascinating. And the proximity of the temple and the synagogue is also one of those testaments to the rather famed uh, coexistence of Hindu and Jewish elements in Cochin. If we move on to the next most well-known Indian Jewish community, that would be the so-called B'nai Israel, the children of Israel. Here's a fascinating depiction of B'nai Israel baking matzah, and they clearly are dressed in uh, traditional Indian costume, but uh, preparing a very traditional Jewish cuisine. Uh, there are uncertain legends of their arrival. Once again, you recall they, they primarily settled a little bit further the north on the western coast. Um, the entire western coast, by the way, uh, achieved a tremendous uh, popularity and surge in transport once the prevailing directions of the monsoon winds were harnessed for efficient travel from uh, the Middle East and the, the Red Sea into the uh, Arab uh, Sea. It is uh, the Arabian Sea. It is important to note that uh, it was a very dangerous passage, especially before the monsoon winds were, were more better understood. No less an important figure than uh, David ben Maimon, the brother of Maimonides, was killed in a shipwreck in the, on this particular route in the Arabian Sea. But at any rate, sometime, possibly in the ancient period, uh, definitely by the medieval period, Jews were settled in the region of Mumbai, um, and these are the so-called B'nai Israel. Like the Cochin Jews to the south, they also exercised indigenous spiritual leadership, meaning they did not really rely heavily on imported rabbis, as far as we can tell, at least until the modern period. And so they developed a lot of kind of unusual cultural idiosyncrasies that you don't necessarily see in other Jewish communities. But there's a remarkable explosion of Jewish activity among the B'nai Israel in the early 19th century, ironically with the arrival of Christian missionaries. This is because the Christians come in, and as we saw to a certain degree with the influence of Jesuits on the Chinese Jewish population, the uh, Christian Jewish missionaries bring a lot more exposure to the broader Jewish world with them uh, through their attempt to convey uh, Christian doctrines. And the B'nai Israel, as it were, said, wow, this is really interesting. And oh my gosh, you know Hebrew, so you could teach me Hebrew. And all of a sudden, these B'nai Israel started becoming really proficient 
in Hebrew and started studying more and more Tanakh and getting more involved in Mishnah, Talmud, and so on. And they ended up developing really a, a quite rich uh, connection with the rest of world Jewry, so much so that like Cochin Jewry in the 20th century, there was a very heavy movement of B'nai Israel to make Aliyah, to move to Israel. Uh, I'm not going to discuss 20th century issues in this particular class. We'll have to get to it in the next semester, but uh, they're really quite connected to the rest of world Jewry and especially to the land of Israel. Just to have a look at some of the interesting cultural features that developed among the B'nai Israel, here you see an interesting uh, custom that right next to the mezuzah, the, uh, the small device that's attached to Jewish doors that has a, a piece of uh, the Hebrew scriptures in it that uh, from the Shema prayer. Uh, uh, on the right, they also put up some rice stalks as a kind of prayer, physical prayer for good fortune and fertility. Fascinating. Uh, and also you see among the B'nai Israel in, in this particular photograph, which is from the mid 20th century. I know I wouldn't, I said I wouldn't talk about the 20th century, but nevertheless, especially through their contacts with Christian missionaries, the B'nai Israel begin to make a distinct movement towards modernity, as you can see in the varieties of clothing and their generational differences in this picture alone. And there are many such examples of these photographs from the early 20th century. Finally, let's have a quick look at the Baghdadi and Paradesi Jews. Uh, the Baghdadi Jews, as the name implies, were a representative of a significant population of Jews who began to move to the Indian subcontinent primarily for international trade, and they began to establish strong footholds there. Uh, many other Jews from the region began to coalesce around the, the Baghdadis, and in general, they tend to be known as Sephardim, even though the term Safarad really applies to um, Spain and the Spanish diaspora, nevertheless, many communities from the Middle East, the so-called Mizrahi communities, also have a tendency to refer to themselves as Sephardim, at least to distinguish themselves from Ashkenazim, who also had some migration to India, but not nearly in the same numbers. The so-called Paradesi Jews uh, follow many of the patterns of the Baghdadi Jews, although they do not necessarily stem from the same region of the Middle East. The term Paradesi means apparently foreign, so they're like from foreign countries as opposed to uh, local indigenous populations or from Baghdad specifically. Uh, one of the most famous of these early Baghdadi immigrants was David Sassoon, a very important builder of the Indian community. You can see him here on the left, and then uh, with his sons, who all were very, very important in developing the uh, economic infrastructure of Baghdadi Jewry. Now, at this point, I'm just going to mention very quickly one kind of passing comment that refers not only to the um, the Cochin and the, um, the B'nai Israel populations uh, who were heavily influenced by Varna, that is the caste system in India, uh, but it was accelerated with the arrival of the British in the 19th century that adds to it classism. And you have this unusual phenomenon where uh, Jews in India will begin to break down in a caste-like status um, associated with their occupations and sometimes with their racial characteristics as well. And you have some complications 
that are not present in traditional Jewish approaches to the uh, ban on marriages between these different self-imposed castes. There are some very limited bans on, uh, for example, the priestly caste, the Kohanim, are not uh, allowed to marry, for example, divorcees, but it's, it's really quite minor by comparison to the very complex uh, caste system that pertained in India up until 1947, at least legally. You also have linguistic implications because many of these Jews, particularly those generations who came uh, later, begin to see the British as, uh, you know, the, the, the power that um, will offer them the most opportunities for their own economic and social advancement. And so they begin to assimilate themselves or acculturate themselves towards British norms, uh, focusing on the English language rather than local Indian languages and so on. Much more to say about this, but really we're still looking at the early modern period as a terminus. So we'll have to talk about the other elements when we get a little further in the semester. I hope you found this topic as fascinating as I did, and uh, I want to thank you very much for watching, and hopefully I'll see you in uh, more videos. Thank you.